so nice to hear all these people up north applauding a true Buckeye. So that's awesome. And uh, my wife is here, and uh, some of you are very blessed to be around a Buckeye as well. So looks like some people spread away from you today, Laura. <laughs> Um, no, but yeah, she grew up in Farmington Hills, and uh, we're spending the weekend with Grammy and Papa and our kids. Haley is 12, Alexa is 9, and Lucas is 5, and so that keeps life very exciting for us. Um, but as any good pastor should do, you study other churches, and uh, Laura's had some friends who work for Woodside, and she went to high school with some people uh, who are part of the Woodside family, and so I just, I've gotten to know uh, some of the things that God is using you to do over the last few years. And so I got to know Steve as well. And so I just want to say, you guys are doing some great work. You know, I'm on the outside looking in, uh, but I'm learning from, from what your church is doing. And you guys are obviously making an impact in the community and the world, uh, which is awesome. So, so keep, keep at it. And, and if you haven't gone all in yet, do it. Do it and be part of this uh, great body, which is Romeo, but also the larger Woodside family. So today, uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. And so if you have a Bible or uh, if you don't, that's fine. You can see it on the screens here. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the end of Genesis 3. And you've been studying this idea of paradise lost, paradise lost. And so today, we're going to wrap that up here with the text but um, is anybody visiting for the weekend like, like we are? Anybody? Any hands go up? Maybe a few. Yeah, there's a couple of the hands. Um, if you're like us, you're longing for home. And we love come, coming and, and visiting Grammy and Papa, and uh, we have a great time. They're so hospitable. Uh, we've had a, a comfort, comfortable place to sleep. We've had food, which we haven't had to pay for. We've had built-in babysitting for our kids, which has been phenomenal, um, but this afternoon, we're going to get in the van, and we're going to, to head back to Ohio. And we're kind of ready to go home. We're, we're longing for home. We're, we're longing for that place that is familiar to us, where, you know what, we, we know um, where our kids sleep, and we know that they're going to be in comfortable beds, and we know our neighbors, and, and we know when we come home from from work or, or an outing that uh, our kids are going to be there if it's a good day. Just greet us happily. And we're just ready to go home. We're ready to go home. And so we find this idea, though, of, of home, I, I find it very interesting because oftentimes what we do is we paint this beautiful picture of what home should be like, especially around the holidays, Right? And the house is decorated, the lights are perfect, and you don't have to replace any uh, unlit bulbs on the pre-lit Christmas tree. False advertising, by the way, I think. And yet, inevitably, something happens with this picture of home that begins to crumble like a house of cards. You know, perhaps you've, you've come home or you've had people come home and it's not what you expected it to be. A place of open arms has become a place where they're kindly getting ready to show you out the door. A seat at the table, you quickly begin to notice maybe the extra chairs being removed. Perhaps what you thought was unconditional love now becomes conflict. The cute grandkids, you are understanding why they're grandkids and not your own kids. 
But the picture of home inevitably becomes marred a little bit. Yet even in the midst of that, we still want to go back. I mean, we've had a great time here, here in Michigan, and as with any family, there's been some, some challenges. The kids haven't been as happy or grateful as they should be. The manners haven't been what we expect. And even in the midst of the picture of home being tarnished, we will try this again in about a month. Because we always want to go home. We always want to go home. We understand there's this beautiful picture of home that we paint, but inevitably, because of just reality of life, we realize that the beautiful picture of home becomes marred and it becomes distorted, and we were so looking forward to going home, but now we feel a little bit exasperated, and it's not what we thought it would be. Sometimes instead of being in the home, we sometimes actually begin to feel like we're actually outside looking in. It's not always what we think it should be. So even though we paint this beautiful picture of home, what ends up happening is it's not all it's cracked up to be. And, and this was the case in Genesis chapter 3. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, home for Adam and Eve, it was perfect. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong, and you learned about this in Genesis 1 and 2. And then Genesis 3 comes into the picture. And Genesis 3, just you're, you're kind of off this emotional high. Wow, this God is awesome. Look what he did. He created the heavens and the earth. And you know what? I walked outside. I saw the blue sky. And God created that. He created the sun and the moon and the stars that I saw last night. God is awesome. And he created all this wonderful stuff for Adam to do. And he created Adam. That's amazing. And so you're on this hive, like, man, God is awesome in Genesis 1 and 2. And then you hit Genesis 3, and it's like the bottom just drops out, like, whoa. Adam messed it all up. You know, Genesis 3 isn't the chapter you turn to when you're trying to encourage a friend. Oh, you're feeling down, you're feeling blue. Let me turn to Genesis chapter 3, and let me hear about how life is all messed up because of sin. But yet, Genesis 1 through 3, and this is why it's so encouraging that you've been studying this, it teaches us so much. It teaches us about God. It teaches us about man. It teaches us about sin. And it teaches us about a Savior. And all of that, Genesis 1 and 2, is the home that we want. But Genesis 3, we begin to see that home becomes distorted. It becomes marred, not because of God but because of man. And that's the way it works, right? I mean, if we're honest, one of the reasons that, you know, perhaps this weekend hasn't gone as the picture perfect that I wanted it to be is because of me, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sinful. And we all are. Sin messes everything up. And so we're going to look at this idea of home and what it really shows us about our own hearts today in the text as we wrap up this series called Paradise Lost. You're going to find that even though paradise is lost, God in his great, compassionate, graceful character has provided hope in the midst of paradise lost. So we're going to keep that in mind as we stand, if you would, please, out of the reading of God's Word. So if you would, please stand and follow along with me the text that we're going to study today, Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. The Bible says this. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all 
living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father in heaven, may we be blessed by the reading of your word, and I pray that even though our longing for home is marred, through today's message, we will understand how it can be restored to its perfect intended state. To you be the glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So as we look at today's message, we're going to focus on three main things of why our home is distorted and messed up, why our paradise is lost. The first thing we're going to see from the text is that we are exposed, then we are confused, then we are banished. And so the first thing that we're going to look at today is we are exposed. You look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, and the Bible says this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Let's first of all look at the first part, because it's interesting as you look at Genesis chapter 3, and you've been studying the curse that was placed on all the created order because of Adam's sin, and you've studied Genesis 3.15, which is a beautiful passage in the midst of a depressing, one of the most depressing chapters in the Bible. And then you come to this. We are exposed. It's interesting because as you look at this passage, you have to know within the context that Genesis chapter 2, 17 happened. And there was God. He had created everything for Adam and Eve. Adam had everything he should ever want and everything that he needed to live the beautiful, happy life. He had water. It was there. He had food. It was there. He could work the ground without the sweat of his brow. And feeling sore the next day, he had a woman who was beautiful and was supposed to be there for him. He had everything that he needed, and yet here is the one negative command that God gave Adam. He said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can have anything else that you want. Whatever you want, you can have it, you can enjoy it, do it for my glory, but I have made this for you, for you to enjoy but what does Adam do? Just like a kid who would go into a toy store. If you're like our house, you're seeing the toy catalogs come. And, and I promise you, and it's not just my kids, it's all of your kids as well. And it's not just us, it's all of us. We could have someone sit there and tell us in the toy store, the most beautiful toy store, FAO Schwartz, we could go into there and someone could say to us, you can have everything that you want except for this one toy. And what would we do? I want that one toy. 
Who are you to tell me I can't have something? I want that one toy. I don't care if you're giving me everything. I want that one toy. And then what happens when Adam sins, he's realizing all the repercussions of what his disobedience is going to, to, to do to all the created order. And it seems like he tries to backtrack a little bit. And so what does he do? He goes back to doing what God had commanded him to do. God had told Adam to name all the creatures of the earth. And so there's Adam naming every living creature. And now he comes back and he knows that this person who is Eve is a woman. But now he gives her a name. He gives her a name, which means living. And you see from the text, she was named Eve because she was the mother of all living. If you've looked at the Bible, you understand that names in the Bible are very, very significant. I mean, the word Adam might seem very generic, but it means man, and he's representative of all mankind, and every human is a descendant of Adam. And you look at Eve, and here she is, and Adam recognizes that she's the mother of all living, and so he names her Eve. Now, you can imagine perhaps Adam's predicament here a little bit. He's trying to get back to the way that God intended things to be. But Adam was human, right? And perhaps he should have named his wife Mother of Death. But that wouldn't have gone over very well. But he realizes what she has done in tempting him, but he realizes that he is even more culpable because the command was given to him, and he takes and he sins. You know, names in the Bible are very important, and you could imagine a situation there in the garden like Hosea faced in the Old Testament. I mean, after all, Hosea was instructed by God to communicate to an obstinate, a sinful, a people who had rejected God's provision. Hosea was commanded to name his kids, for instance, the first one, the son of Jezreel, for in a little while... I will bring bloodshed of Jezreel on the household of Jehu. How's that for naming your firstborn? Dad, what does my name mean? It means bloodshed. God's going to bring bloodshed on all the people. Gee, thanks, Dad. Or, or how about his daughter? His daughter was commanded to be named No Compassion. Honey, she looks like No Compassion. That doesn't work in our world. We don't name our kids in that way. But that's what God had commanded Hosea to do. And the second son, not my people. So you could very easily imagine a situation in which Adam, recognizing what had happened, would call his wife mother of dead or mother of death because of the temptation that they had given into and the sin that had resulted. But Adam was now trying to restore that image of home that had been distorted, trying to go back to what was originally intended, trying to recognize that God had given him wonderful, beautiful things. And so he names his wife Eve. When you look at Genesis chapter 3, 21, you see what else happens. You see, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. I remember how Adam and Eve were when he created them both. The Bible says that they were naked and unashamed. They could walk around the garden, no shame whatsoever. The way that God had created them, in his image, he created them, both male and female. And now what happens is, after they succumb to the temptation of the enemy, they realize 
oh, we don't have clothes on. Like imagine all the things that could have come into their mind, and the first thing that comes into their mind is, we don't have any clothes on. And so what do they do? They try to compensate what they perceive as something that's lacking, and they go and they make some fig leaves and turn them into clothes. You know, it's very interesting, and just the oddity of it, of all the things that they could have thought of. You know, like, we don't walk around in the summertime thinking like, oh, I don't have any gloves on my hands. Like, we just don't do that. But this is what Adam did, and this is what the Bible says. Their so-called knowledge that they would have led to them, first of all, realizing, oh, I don't have any clothes. You see, they were, before the fall, naked and unashamed. And now they felt exposed. They felt exposed. And what do people do when they perceive something that's lacking? They try to compensate for it. And in this case, what they did was they created clothes. They lacked something, and they did something in their own power to make up for it. This is so what we do in our own world today. We realize that when we're lacking something, we try to make it better in our own power. And if we're lacking a better paying job, perhaps we go and we get another degree. If, if we feel like you know, our family is lacking something, we try to do what we can to go out and to, and to get what they need. Many of, this, many of us this, this Christmas season will be tempted to go into uh, unspeakable amounts of debt just so our kids can have everything they want around Christmas. We perceive they're lacking something and we compensate in an inadequate way. But what you begin to realize is that these things always fall short. The degree doesn't provide the income you were hoping. You try to look more beautiful only to realize it's a losing battle. You take pride in your family only to realize that the picture that you send out over Christmas truly is just a snapshot of a family that grieves your heart every time you walk in the door. We try to compensate for our failures without God. But notice what God did. God recognizes that they are sinning, and instead of letting them walk the garden in these ill-made fig leaf clothes, he provides something better. It's a great picture of who God is. When we fail and we try to compensate based on our own efforts, God is there to say, I've got something better. But the temptation remains. The temptation always remains in every aspect of life to appear that we have it together as Adam and Eve were trying to do. Hey, God, look at what we did. It wasn't enough. It's like the person who doesn't have a lot trying to look the part. The family that doesn't have money trying to appear like they do. The person who is wrought with dissatisfaction and depressing, trying, and depression, trying to put on a smile for everybody. The person who was recently laid off trying to appear as though everything is okay when it's not. Every time there is a problem, we are drawn to compensate for our failures. So we find ourselves exposed. That's what Adam and Eve had experienced. Their knowledge didn't bring what it had promised to bring. Instead, it brought shame. And home, the picture of home, began to crumble because instead of feeling safe and secure, they felt 
exposed. Second thing that we see is here in verse 22. We are confused. We are confused. Look at the text. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. As we said before, all this is in the context of Genesis 1 and 2. And Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, was the one command that God had given that they should not, that Adam should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. That was the simple instruction. It was the one thing he wasn't supposed to do. But what does the serpent do? And his cunning ability. He comes and he, he begins to entice Eve, as you've studied, and, and he takes God's words and he manipulates them and twists them and, and, and makes it seem kind of what God said, but then says, well, did God really say that? And what God really meant is this is going to happen and this isn't so bad, so why don't you go ahead and do it? And then Adam's right there. And Adam takes of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thinking that it will bring more knowledge that will be helpful and beneficial, and it doesn't. It doesn't. As you look at the text, it's very important to understand what was going on here. It's almost as if they're in a courtroom where the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. You see, the problem is, that it wasn't just the knowledge they were seeking, but they were desiring to be more like God. And isn't that just like Satan? Because after all, Adam and Eve were the only ones who were created in the image of God. They were the only ones created like God. And now Satan comes along and says, well, not so much. There's more. And so he entices them and he promises them with knowledge to be like God when in fact what the knowledge did was it brought shame and it brought sin and it brought a shattered view of paradise and a shattered reality. You know, this is what this enemy does all the time. He tells us saying, hey, this is, this is what you need to do. This is the real knowledge that you need. And it leads us down a road of despair. You see, what Adam and Eve did was they, they took what God had given them and they said, you know what, that's good, but that's not good enough. And they began to go their own way. This is, this is classic humanism. People are living it out all the time. It's the belief that humans can know and discover everything we need to know to take care of ourselves. Take this quote, for instance, from Greg Epstein, who, who wrote the following in his book, Good Without God. He said, if the universe we live in does not have competent moral management, then so be it. We must become the superintendents of our own lives. In short, humanism is being good without God. It is above all an affirmation of the greatest common value we human beings have, the desire to live with dignity, to be good Humanism rejects dependence on faith, the supernatural, divine text, resurrection, reincarnation, or anything else for which we have no evidence. To put it another way, humanists believe in life before death. All that basically means 
is that one of the results of sin entering in the world and sin being a part of who we are is we can go at it without God. We pursue the things of knowledge, thinking they are void of God and thinking that if we can solve it, we're good. We don't have to look to the Bible. We don't have to look to God. We don't have to look to a higher being. We can solve it on ourselves. And that was the problem with Adam and Eve. The temptation came, you really don't have the knowledge that you need. You're not really like God. And so they go their own way to give in to the temptation, sin, and therefore the view of home, what home really is, begins to crumble like a house of cards. What the devil told them would be knowledge actually brought confusion. What the devil told them would make them more like God actually made them less like God. This is what happens. This is what we do, right? This is what we do. We, we come up with systems and, and we come up with ways to solve our own problems. We're lonely, there's a solution for that. We're lacking, there's a solution for that. This is the problem of Adam and Eve and it started with them and it continues throughout all of humanity. We pursue solutions and knowledge apart from God. Whereas if we look at the Bible, the Bible tells us how to pursue true knowledge. In Proverbs 1.7, we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But we don't like that. To fear God actually means growing in knowledge. That's not the piece of the pie we want. And because we don't want it, home becomes more frustrating. Keep in mind, home is supposed to be a place where we are safe, but instead it has become a place where we are exposed. Home is supposed to be a place where we are comfortable with what we know. Instead, it has led to confusion. Well, the third part is this. We are banished. Where once we were welcomed, now we are cast out. Listen to what the Bible has to say. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore... The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Notice a few things that are happening here to highlight the, the, the series of events here. What does God say? The Bible says that God sent him out. And then later in the next verse, it says he drove out the man. Seemingly implying that Adam and Eve did not want to go. And imagine that. Imagine that. Because that's also what the devil does. The devil says, what you have is not good enough. And then after you sin, you realize how good what you had really was. And so you can imagine Adam and Eve, no, God, we don't want to go. We don't want to go. But God drove them out of the Garden of Eden. He didn't have a choice. You see, Adam and Eve were banished because of a few different reasons, and we could go on and on, but let me just give you a few. The first is that God is holy, and he cannot, cannot be present with evil. You look at Habakkuk 1.13, and, and the prophet there says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So they were banished because Adam and Eve sinned and sinned, and God do not mix at all. But there were also practical consequences to their sin. We've understood how they were supposed to, to enjoy all the created order, but now as a result of sin, it would become hard to work. 
The plants that they would plant would have weeds all around them. Adam would till the garden. He would be sore and sweat from his brow would come down. And animals would come and they would eat what he was trying to plant to provide for his family. There were practical consequences to his sin. And one of the practical consequences was that he was cast out of the garden. And we sit there and we look at that and we're like, well, God, aren't you, aren't you a God of grace? I mean, after all, when I mess things up at home, I'm, I'm welcomed back. I mean, shouldn't God have just said to Adam, hey, you know what? You messed up the first time. Let's just pretend like that was practiced and let's try again. And that's where the enemy's confusion of our knowledge begins to kick in. Because he begins to distort our view of God. No, it doesn't work like that. God gave them one command and Adam messed it up. And there were practical consequences to his sin. And keep in mind, this isn't the first time that God cast someone out of his presence. It happened with the serpent. We're told in Scripture that there was Lucifer, the most beautiful of all the angels that were created. And what does he do? He wants to be, and this should sound familiar, like God. And he sinned. And he took a third of the angels with him. And what did God do? He cast him out of heaven into hell. But you also see in this, he was banished because God understood that even in the midst of this banishment, there needed to be hope. That's why you come to the part there where he drove man out and he stationed cherubim. These are like super angels and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve had lost their home. The once perfect reality that they lived in, the paradise, was now completely lost. But there was hope. There was hope. Keep in mind, they had been exposed, they had been confused, and they had been banished. Yet all in the midst of this, God was providing a path. And here's what happens, and here's where it's so important for us to understand Just as Adam and Eve had been exposed, confused, and banished, they longed for home. They longed to get back to home. They longed for a time where sin did not mar the created order. They longed for a time where where their sons would have been born, and instead of the first thing being accounted for them as being one of them being a murderous son who killed his brother, they longed for the presence of God and perfect paradise. We long for home. But if we begin to realize that just as Adam and Eve were longing for home, what they were really longing for is God. And if we can come to that reality too, the longing that we have for home is really a longing for God. Our longing for home is a longing for God. Well, then it changes the whole narrative. I I can now begin to understand how my longing for home is really a longing for God. But then the question becomes, if our longing for home is really a longing for God, now the question becomes, how do we get home? Because God, even though he was banishing them, was giving them a glimpse of the map pieces of the puzzle that would get them back home. I love the story of Sir Edward C. Burne-Jones. He was a prominent 19th century English artist. 
And one day he went to his daughter's home, and he had a beautiful granddaughter there, but the granddaughter disobeyed her mom, and and therefore she was banished to the corner of the house for her punishment. And there she stood with her nose in the corner, and as the grandfather observed this, he didn't interfere because he knew that she had done something wrong, and he wasn't going to interfere with the punishment. But at the end of the day, as he was leaving home, he he went back to his house, and he got out his paints, and he came back to to his daughter's home. And while they were busy doing something else, he simply went into the corner of the house and, and he began to draw and paint beautiful little pictures that a little girl would enjoy. A kitten chasing its tail, lambs in the field, fish jumping out of the water, little flowers and so forth. Because he knew when his granddaughter would disobey, she would have to go back to the corner. And so he was just simply looking to somehow temper the judgment by an act of grace. And so here's Grandpa painting these little pictures, knowing that his little granddaughter will go there once again, and the judgment would be tempered by grace. Isn't this what happens with us? Even in the midst of the most depressing of chapters in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, that judgment is tempered by grace. This isn't just in Genesis 3. This is consistent throughout the whole Bible. When you look at the scriptures, you begin to understand that there was Jesus telling the story of the prodigal son. And what happens in Luke 15? There was a longing for a home. And the judgment was tempered by grace. There was the son who found himself eating with pigs. Eating with the dirtiest animals, according to Jewish tradition. And he comes to the conclusion, if I can just go home and act like a slave and just simply be a slave, my longing for home will be satisfied. But instead, you know this this beautiful story. He goes home and the father embraces him and he says, kill the fatted calf and we're going to have a celebration because my son has come home. Judgment was tempered by grace. We have to remember that our home is not of this world. What did Jesus say in John 18, 36? My kingdom is not of this world. Remember the writer of Hebrews 13, 14, for this world is not our permanent home. Or Peter writing to the Christians who had been dispersed because of persecution, who were longing to go back to Jerusalem. That was home. What did he say to them in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12? Friends, this world is not our home. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus left his home, which was heaven, in order to come to this world in order to temper the judgment with his grace. You look at Genesis chapter 3 and you see that Adam was exposed, he was confused, he was banished. We look at Jesus, Jesus was exposed, right? I mean, there he was on the cross without clothes being murdered. The crown of thorns on his head, blood dripping down, nails in his hands and his feet, fully exposed shamefully for the world to see. People look at Jesus and, and there's, there's confusion there, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense that you're supposed to make yourself a servant in order to be great. It doesn't make sense that the poor will inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't make sense that a widow would put a mite into the treasury and she would give more than everybody else. It doesn't make sense that in order to be Like Jesus, or in order to live, you must die. This was confusing to the world. I mean, after all, there was Jesus, and there was Barabbas, a murderer, and Jesus. And who did the crowd cheer for? 
free, give us Barabbas, the murderer. That doesn't make sense. In a confused world, though, Jesus brought true wisdom to us, telling us how to live a godly life and how to make ourselves right with God. And Jesus was also banished. Keep in mind, he was crucified outside the city gate. He was told that he shouldn't come into this place. He even went to his own hometown, and, and what did they do there? I mean, after all, this was Jesus. This was the, their boy from their town, and they should have been writing news stories about him and how great he was, but instead, a prophet is not welcomed in his own town. You see, 1 Peter tells us that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Think about that. To bring you home to restore your shattered image of home and to make it even better than you can imagine. You see, our longing for home is really a longing for God, and it's only satisfied through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we begin to realize that then, then the marred reality of our beautiful pictured home that becomes distorted, then it becomes more clear and we realize, yes, I can go home. Yes, I can go see my parents. Yes, I can go see my family. Yes, I don't have to work these extra hours just to avoid being home. I can go home because I am right with God because he always invites me home through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, 19 through 21. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, you get this, Adam versus Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded even more. Think about that in the context of Genesis 3. Adam sinned in a huge way. It messed everything up. But God's grace was greater than Adam's sin. Romans goes on to say, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible clearly says that our longing for home is a longing for God that is satisfied through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one final note, there is always grace at home. There's always grace in God's home. The Bible says that he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned in every way to guard the way of the tree of life. One prominent pastor in the last century, Donald Barnhouse, had this to observe. He said this, how often is it necessary for God to drive us out of an apparent good to bring us to the place of real good? Once sin had entered, to live forever would have been hell on earth. To set us free from sin and death, the Savior had to come who would rightly claim, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. There is always grace in God's home. But instead of embracing that, what do we try to do? And this is where many of you or, or us are here today. Where are we placing our hope? We find ourselves exposed and we try to cover ourselves up inadequately. We find ourselves confused and instead of turning to God, we, we turn to our own knowledge which got us there in the first place. We find ourselves banished and instead of 
doing things God's way, we continue to try to do them our way, and it only creates a greater distance. Did you know that the tree of life appears in Scripture again? In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus said this, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You've been studying how paradise was lost. But the end of this message is that, yes, paradise is lost, but paradise can be found again. And that's the beautiful part of Scripture here, even in the banishment, even in the curses that were placed upon all the created order. There's Genesis 3.15, and there's the last part of Genesis 3. Even though they were driven out, God is graciously providing hope for them because, as was noted, if they would have eaten of the tree of life, it's largely believed they would have lived forever in sin. And so there's God in His graciousness protecting humanity from living a life eternally in a sinful state. But Jesus says that tree will be made available to those who believe in Jesus. Paradise will be regained, and we will have to eat of that tree, the abundance. Whatever we want from the tree of life, we can take. We can take one bite. We can take a bushel. We can take a whole mess for our whole family. If we believe in Jesus. We don't get to eat of the tree of life, and we don't regain paradise unless we become followers of Jesus. Unless we begin to realize that our home, our longing for home is really a longing for God that is only satisfied by the grace of Jesus Christ. So that's my question for you today. Do you find yourself longing for home and continually unsatisfied and unfulfilled? Just realize that that's a longing for God. And by you believing in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, and you beginning to live a life that is demonstrated by a love for God and a desire to bring honor and glory to God, then you will not experience paradise lost, but you will experience paradise regained. I know that's our prayer for all of us here today that we would have the forgiveness of sins and that one day we will regain paradise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, to you be the glory. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that is in our lives. Thank you that even though the path becomes difficult, the picture of home becomes tarnished, marred, distorted, whatever the case might be, that when we realize that our longing for home is really a longing for God that can only be satisfied through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Think that when we realize that, yes, paradise is lost, but it will be regained. And yes, the tree has been protected, but it will be made available. And Father, we all fall into these traps that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. And we have all found ourselves exposed. We have all found ourselves confused, and we have all found ourselves banished. But Father, I pray that if there are those who are here today who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that you would draw them to yourselves, that they would begin to realize the longing for home will never be satisfied until they turn to Jesus. And Father, that that longing for home in Jesus Christ will lead to eternity in paradise. And so, Father, 
And we come before you recognizing that we need your help in our lives, recognizing that we need your forgiveness for the ways that we've tried to do things apart from you, and recognizing that only you are the answer to help bring us home. So Jesus, please, please, please bring more of us home today. In your name we pray.